Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. In this episode, we talk about Holocaust remembrance and the lessons we can learn from it for speaking up against anti-Semitism today. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in a documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and the daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I immigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Dimbler-Miller, the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, thenedgeofthewedge.com. I grew up in the Midwest in a town in Elgin, Illinois, where all the Jews at our one synagogue did not have a, con a connection to the Holocaust. Their parents and grandparents had come at the turn of the 20th century to escape the Tsar and other pogroms. Yet in 1970, only 25 years after the end of World War II, my US Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich, Germany, and this changed our lives forever. Mark Weitzman is chief operating officer for the World Jewish Restitution Organization. His plays, uh, he plays a leading role in advocacy and negotiation efforts to recover Jewish properties in Europe in pursuit of a measure of justice for Holocaust survivors, their families, and Jewish communities. He's also a member of the official U.S. delegation to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA, or IRA, where he chaired the Committee on Antisemitism and Holocaust Denial. He's also the past chair of the Working Group on Holocaust Museums and Memorials. He's also the vice president of the Association of Holocaust Organizations. Mark, welcome. We're honored to have you on our show. Thank you for the invitation. It's my honor to be here with you. Thank you. So um, can you tell us a little about your background? What, what brought you to the important work you're doing? Well, it's actually interesting in some ways, to me at least, um, because I'm not a uh, child of survivors at all. Um, my four grandparents and even a couple of my uh, great grandparents were here in the U.S. Uh, you know, way before uh, World War II. Um, I did not grow up with the Holocaust as a primary interest or, or focus in my family. Um, however, I did grow up. I was born in Brooklyn and grew up in a modern Orthodox home um, and schooling in a non-Jewish neighborhood. Um, and I think something there raised the question, which I've never really moved away from of the relationship between Jews and non-Jews and the outside world around them. Um, and when I was going through graduate school, um, my interests were Jewish intellectual history, as well as that relationship between uh, you know, Jews and non-Jews, which focused not necessarily on, anti on, uh, on the Holocaust, but more in the history of anti-Semitism um, and Jewish-Christian relations. Um, nonetheless, at some point during that period, I, when I was offered a position with the Simon Wiesenthal Center, um, I realized that that was a chance to translate an academic interest, intellectual interest into uh, practical work, um, keep a foot sort of in both the academic and, and the practical world. Um, took it and spent 35 or so years working at the Wiesenthal Center as director of government affairs there um, and directing some of the research for the Wiesenthal Center um, and then shifted to WJRO uh, a year ago, kind of in fulfillment of what one of my mentors, Simon Wiesenthal, um, blessed memory, he always used to talk about um, that he wasn't going to, when if he got to heaven, if he was being judged, 
it wasn't going to be as a, necessarily a Nazi hunter per se or any of the things that people associated with him, but it was in keeping alive the um, memory of what happened for the survivors and achieving justice for them. Um, and in some ways, uh, the opportunity to come full circle and bring some closure or some measure of justice to survivors before time ran out um, brought me back here. And uh, and it's a chance to combine elements of both uh, my previous worlds and, and current um, because there are issues such as distortion of the Holocaust, which are clearly both anti-Semitic in many ways, as well have an impact on in the world of restitution. Um, so that brings me here to uh, where we sit today. Okay. So uh, a remarkable, um, a remarkable cause that you are, uh, 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 I say, dedicating yourself to. Thank you for that. Since our podcast is uh, mostly on anti-Semitism and that we frequently talk about the Holocaust, let's first talk about your work at the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, the IRA. Tell us about drafting the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism, how it's been adopted around the world by some institutions in some countries, and why that's important. Well, I, I, to begin with that, answering that, I have to actually um, answer a couple of other questions that were sort of unasked here. Uh, before I get to that definition. So first of all, to explain what IRA is to our listeners who may not be aware of it. IRA is an intergovernmental organization, which means that it has some sort of official status to join IRA countries, and it's only national uh, or, uh, nations that can join IRA, not individuals or, or organizations per se, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, have to have an application from the foreign minister or that level of, uh, of, of interest and the delegations are headed by senior diplomats, ambassadors, or, or you know, those uh, envoys on, on that level. Um, the delegations are composed of experts in academia, in, in uh, education, in museums, memorials, and so on, um, who come together twice a year uh, to work. The chair rotates every year. It's a different country, currently Sweden. Um, but IRA's goals are to increase um, education and remembrance about the Holocaust, um, it is not legally binding. In other words, an IRA decision is, is, is a political or a moral decision, um, but it's not legally binding on countries. But it has certainly an impact because of the, the governmental participation in it, the formality of it. The tricky and hard part of IRA is that all decisions are taken by consensus. Meaning, mm. in that case, that every country around the table has to assent, has to agree to the decision. Otherwise, it's blocked. So to get something through IRA, you have to have, um, at this point, 35 countries agreeing to something. The membership of IRA is both European, in many ways, the countries, uh, Western and, and Eastern, the countries that were involved in the Holocaust in different ways, from Germany to France to the UK, um, to uh, Serbia, Croatia, the Balkans, the Baltics, Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, so on and so forth, um, as well as countries like Israel, the United States, Canada, um, Argentina and Australia. Uh, so it truly is multinational and global in many ways. Um, and it has become the go-to um, sort of uh, organization for official Holocaust remembrance and now including anti-Semitism. So a number of years ago, we were realized that when I was chairing this committee and involved in this uh, committee on anti-Semitism, that the issue of Holocaust distortion and denial was um, beginning to percolate uh, even more so. And we were sitting around the table, representatives of 35 countries, various disciplines, um, and we had to be sure that everybody was speaking the same language. 
meaning you know our common language is English, but first of all, not everyone's English is perfect. And secondly, that there's a lot of gray areas and nuance when it comes to talking about these subjects that we want to be sure that everyone understood exactly what we were referring to. So we drafted initially a working definition of Holocaust denial and distortion, where I was the lead author of, um, which was finally adopted in 2013 under the Canadian chairmanship. Having successfully passed that, and that took about five years to get through because there were a number of countries, the denial issue was not a difficult. Everyone agreed um, after Deborah Lipstadt's famous trial uh, and victory against David right. Irving, that everyone agreed that the neo-Nazi version of, of Holocaust denial was, okay, we could agree, that's bad. Um, but when it came to distortion, which involved, for example, attempts to whitewash local collaborators or to lessen the number of victims or to exaggerate the number of rescuers or you know any of those sort of gray kind of areas that did not reach into outright Holocaust denial, there were countries that were hesitant to embrace that. And it took some political effort and, and will power and maneuvering and, and hard work to get it finally adopted. Um, having succeeded in that, um, and I want to mention, by the way, the, the person who's most responsible for the founding of IRA is the great historical uh, Israeli historian Yehuda Bauer. Um, and all this was done in consult consultation with Yehuda, who is still at the age of 95, 95 or 96, um, still active and still shows up at plenaries and still has maintains an active interest in the work of IRA. Um, but it was kind of his brainchild and, and his uh, idea. Um, I remember sitting with Yehuda and talking about next steps. And we realized at that time that there had been a definition of anti-Semitism that had been floating around um, that grew out of efforts in the early 2000s to deal on an international level with uh, what was happening with a wave of anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, it was kind of grew out of meetings that were held um, on the level of the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is 57 member states. Um, in Europe that deal with security, but also have a human rights dimension. Um, and for example, Colin, there was a, uh, a meeting in Berlin in uh, 2004 that then Secretary of State Colin Powell, head of the U.S. delegation, was that level. Um, and out of all that work, grew a working definition of anti-Semitism that was posted to the website of the uh, European Union's human rights arm at that point. And then a number of years later, it never was adopted officially, it was posted. Um, it got scrubbed with a number of other non-official documents from it, but it meant that because it had never been officially adopted and because it was scrubbed, there was nothing out there that was a reference to help people gauge what anti-Semitism really is or isn't. So uh, in conversation with Yehuda, I came up with the idea of that being our next step, taking it to our committee, um, our work, get the experts behind it, then bring it up to the diplomatic level. It took another three years, and finally under the Romanian chairmanship in 2016, that working definition of anti-Semitism was officially adopted. Um, and we, it, it was an IRA, you know, it, it was meant for our use in IRA. Uh, we didn't have greater grandiose visions at that point of it. Um, it was important because again, it brought everyone, gave everyone a common conception of what we were referring to. It was um, sort of multi-layered in, in some ways. It had a, uh, a descriptive of anti-Semitism followed by a series of examples that could relate to it. Uh, one of the key things about it was we wanted it to encompass more than just the traditional, you know, hard right wing neo-Nazi extremist version of anti-Semitism, recognizing that there was now anti-Semitism uh, that was aimed at Israel as a collective. There was anti-Semitism that was coming from the left still, um, extreme left and, and descendant of, of communist uh, anti-Semitism. And we wanted something that would be flexible enough 
to encompass it. And in the sense why we called it a working definition, it's non-legally binding, and it's a working definition. The idea of a working definition meant that it was not an academic definition. It was not, it, we didn't mean it as uh, as a work in progress to be amended constantly, but it was not an academic definition. It was meant for practical use for people who are in the field. And I'll give you one quick concrete example of why we realized it was necessary. <clears throat> um, in, I think, uh, 2014, in an earlier um, Gaza war, um, there was a synagogue in uh, in Germany that in a small German town that uh, had been rebuilt. It was destroyed in the late 30s, Kristallnacht, but rebuilt after the war. It was firebombed. Um, we literally, I could show slides of the, the Molotov cocktails, the bottles. What town? Of what town? Um, it was, I'm blanking on the town. Okay. Just... Um, um, but uh, it was firebombed, and two uh, men of Middle Eastern descent were arrested and uh, confessed to it. And two German courts, one German court and then an appeals court, all ruled that that was just a political protest against Israeli action. It was not a hate crime. It was not you know anything like that. And the idea that you could violently assault and commit an act of violence and with people in the building um, and not call that a hate crime showed how it was difficult it was to to target or pin something as being anti-Semitic uh, in this political climate. And to their credit, by the way, that was one of the motivating things for the country of Germany to begin getting involved in, in the definition and and putting it forward and and you know doing things later on to with it. Um, so the uh, that example kind of crystallized things, and we realized we wanted something that would encompass that. So as I said, under the Romanian chairmanship, it was adopted in 2016, um, and then much to our surprise, it started getting traction outside of Ireland. Uh, the UK was the first country to adopt it independently, um, followed by Israel and a number of other countries. And to date, it's been adopted by uh, 35 countries on a formal basis, wow. 27 American states, meaning more than half of the U.S., uh, universities, uh, the U.N. has referred to the U.N. actually last January in their resolution on Holocaust denial, condemning Holocaust denial, actually quoted our Holocaust denial definition. That's the basis of the UN resolution on Holocaust denial. Um, the Organization of American States adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, produced a handbook on it. Um, the EU has produced a handbook on it and how to use it. Um, so it's got this immense traction. The, the world's largest group of imams, the Church of England, um, football, soccer teams. Lufthansa really had an embarrassing instance recently where it turned out they profiled a number of Hasidic Jews um, as part of their training and reaction to it, they announced, I think last week, that they're officially adopting it and using it as part of their training program now. So it's really, it clearly met a need and has transcended IRA and has become perhaps the single most um, important uh, step in fighting anti-Semitism, fighting anti-Semitism in decades. Um, so that, that was a much longer answer than I think that you anticipated, but I just kind of wanted to give a picture of it. I think yeah. it was a very good answer for our audience, really. Excellent. So, so the IRA definition, working definition of anti-Semitism is, uh, you hear it all the time, it's, uh, it's uh, the most used uh, definition of anti-Semitism these days, I think. Um, can you give some examples, Mark, um, as explained by the definition as to what is anti-Semitic? 
as opposed to legitimate criticism of Israel. So if I go into the uh, description of the of the definition itself, it begins with a short description of, you know, anti-Semitism is a perception, a certain perception of Jews. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but it gives that description and highlights it in, in sort of a boxed area because we wanted to highlight that. Immediately after that, however, is a, uh, a, a, a short paragraph that explains how manifestations of anti-Semitism regarding uh, the state of Israel um, it can include... And, you know, a, a sort of terse description of uh, as a Jewish collective. In other words, that that Israel represents Jews worldwide and, and all Jews are thus uh, legitimate targets um, if you oppose Israel. But then we, we immediately state that criticism of Israel, similar to criticism of every democratic state, is legitimate and is not anti-Semitic. So to give a concrete example, if you, even in some controversial issue, uh, if you say that you oppose um, Israeli policy or uh, action on, uh, on on something vis-a-vis the Palestinians, um, that's that's not anti-Semitic per se. I mean, it, you, you know, how you couch it may be, but if you say you oppose it and it's wrong and so on, and you're morally opposed to it, politically opposed to it, I may disagree with you, but I have no problem with you saying it. If you say, however, that Israel is out to commit genocide and is trying to commit genocide, um, then you've taken it to a different level. If you say that Israel is a racist country that has no right to exist, unless you're saying that no nation states should exist, you've taken it to a different level. It's that double standard um, that is one of the qualifiers for where things are anti-Semitic. We also make the point that context matters, that how you say things and the circumstances in which you say things matter as well. And I think one of the strengths of our definition is that it's not a rigid checks box like that. Um, it's it's really a a nuance that it leaves opening for people to recognize that situations can change. Um, and as I said, if you have someone who supposedly let let's say a number of years ago Israel built a separation wall to protect itself from uh, a series of bombings and so on. If you have someone who says that I oppose that wall. Um, and it's it's immoral, it's 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 wrong, etc. Well, there are two ways of looking at it. If that person opposes that wall only, but doesn't oppose the wall that Saudi Arabia built, or doesn't oppose the wall um, between you know Pakistan or or and, and India in some ways, or doesn't oppose any of the I don't know twenty or other separation walls that are built by countries, and listen, we have a wall that was a big item of contention in the United States down on our you know uh, Mexican border as well. If you oppose only one wall and one issue, that raises your motives into question. If you can say legitimately, I oppose all walls between countries, and there shouldn't be any, well, I may disagree with you and say that, you know, this wall has protected people and served its purpose, etc., but I will not impugn you as being anti-Semitic because you're consistent, and it's it's a position that I respect, even if I might disagree with it. So that's some of the nuance and some of the context built into it as well. We do include um, examples, a series of 11 examples in it. Um, you know, for example, including Jews, uh, accusing Jews of, uh, around the world of being uh, representative, let's say, of the state of Israel. Um, and, uh, for example, how that would play out was a number of years ago, uh, two years ago, um, when there were all those protests in the United States about uh, what was happening again in Gaza. Um, there were restaurants in Los Angeles and New York where people were accosted 
And they were not asked, did they support the war? Did they support, you know, Bibi Netanyahu? Did they vote for Labour, Likud, or, you know, whatever? They were simply asked if they were Jewish by the, you know, the, the extreme pro-Palestinian side. That, to me, is a clear example of, even if they're sort of politically motivated, but it descended into flat-out anti-Semitism, because the question was not, you know, what do you think, but who are you? Right. And that is a bias. Yeah. So we tried to encompass that. Um, we tried to include using symbols and images associated with classic anti-Semitism, such as claims of Jews, uh, of, of uh, Jews killing Jesus or blood libel, uh, you know, targeting Israel, associated with Israel, the double standard of accusing Jews of being more loyal to Israel than to their own country. Um, but at the same time, we tried to include traditional um, anti-Semitism as well, um, and uh, you know and the examples are just a series of examples. They're not limited. You know, anti-Semitism is not limited to the eleven examples that we have. Um, and there are others that we could add, and some may be less relevant as time goes by. Um, but they're illustrative examples meant to help. And, and as you said, Mark, the <clears throat> this working definition is used a lot, but it's not legally binding. But people can use it. To, find, uh, to define for themselves where, right. where we draw the line of what is anti-Semitic and what is not. And, so I, and they can explain others. Very practical yeah. about that. Um, in, in his last year in office, uh, President Trump signed an executive order about anti-Semitism based on the IRA definition. But that executive order did not, for example, people mischaracterized it as saying that the U.S. government is doing this and it's requiring a crackdown on, on, on uh, people criticizing Israel and so on and so forth. No, the executive order was very specific and was very pointed. It applied only to the Department of Education, and it applied only to certain circumstances where there was an allegation or a claim of anti of bias against Jewish students or uh, or motivated by anti-Semitism on a college campus. And it was meant to help clarify whether that was an example of anti-Semitism, in which case it falls under certainly you know, protected categories, or whether it didn't it was it did not reach that level and had to be treated as a less, let's say, severe offense. Um, so it's a perfect example of it's not legally binding. It's it's used for um, clarification, for education, for you know, for sorting out, for training purposes. Um, of course, by the way, any country that decides to, to apply it, you know, any democratic country has the right to decide how they want to apply it or not. When we said non-legally binding, it was coming out of IRA, we don't have the right or the uh, authority to impose anything from IRA in a legal codification, in a legal sense of it. Um, so we had no pretensions and made no you know, claims for that. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy to keep it in the sense of, uh, you know, where it is as a sort of advisory, um, practical matter. Um, I, I'm not looking to, you know, enter the free speech wars. Um, I actually am a pretty big proponent of, of, you know, freedom of speech. Um, I think we have enough canceling going on on all sides today. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to be able to critique and learn. Um, and that's where the definition comes in. Um, and it was, by the way, it was, it was adopted by the State Department as well a number of years ago and it was posted yeah. on the State Department website. And I just want to say before I ask the next question, it's the link to the definition with the examples is posted at the very top of our YouTube website, the banner literally right there. Right. So those of you, when you come, uh, you know, who listen to our podcast can check the definition anytime. 
But mm-hmm. now my question is, what is the most important lesson that we can learn from the remembrance of the Holocaust for speaking up against anti-Semitism today? Uh, I think there are a couple of elements involved here. First of all, the remembrance of the Holocaust per se by itself is not an antidote to anti-Semitism. Um, there are people who use the Holocaust for all sorts of purposes, ranging from political purposes, ranging from extremists that cons- support extremist conspiracy theories. I have no truck with those who you know, participate in anti-vaccination campaigns and use yellow stars or, you know, uh, or claims that we were turning into not, that a public health measure was similar to Nazi Germany. Um, those are um, extreme conspiracy theories that certainly draw on anti-Semitic motifs. Um, and I reject them totally. Um, there are members of the U.S. Congress who have uh, used Holocaust imagery in ways that are offensive and inappropriate, um, for example. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, we have to be careful about, you know, saying that, having uh, that the Holocaust is the answer or antidote to uh, teaching about it to anti-Semitism. I think that we can say, though, that it is a necessary component, I think, of recognizing um, and and part of uh, where our society today came from um, in both positive and negative way. The negative way clearly being it's the classic example, maybe the paradigmatic example, I think, again, that's Yehuda Bauer's word, of not only anti-Semitism, but industrial uh, technological genocide in the 20th century and in recent memory. Um, And it also is the foundation in many ways of our world. The institutions of liberal democracy whether they've had failures or not, I'm not going to get into that. That's a whole different discussion. Uh, but um, places like the UN or the EU or you know or, or things like that, uh, institutions like that, organizations like that, and concepts like genocide and, and war crimes and crimes against humanity all grew out of um, the revulsion of the Holocaust and, and the reaction to the cost, the human cost of World War II. Um, so there's an element there we, we need to understand it's part of the foundation of our world, of our democracy, liberal democracy. And I think that's one of the reasons why, if I can go back to January 6th, the insurrection storming of the Capitol, I think I was taken very strongly by uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's reaction afterwards. Um, there was so much, and, and again, she's a veteran politician, and I'm not taking position on, on her positions right, or anything right. like that, but she's a veteran politician, as, as, as tough as they come, you don't get to that position, especially as a woman, if you're you know not not strong and not tough. Um, and she focused on the, I can't say gentleman, on the individual wearing the Camp Auschwitz t-shirt. And I wondered with all the other weird characters out there with the hats and the, and the, and the horns and, you know, everything else, why did she focus on that, that person and that individual? And I think she honed in on something, kind of what I just mentioned, that, um, the attempt to, and this is where Holocaust distortion comes back into the picture, the attempt to distort and minimize the Holocaust means an attempt in its own way, kind of obliquely, but it is an attempt to undermine those institutions that, that are that we're, our society today is built on. Um, as I said, the concepts of human rights and, and, and rejection of, uh, of um, discrimination and bias based on religion and race and, and, and so on. Um, the, uh, the international organizations that undergird and, and are supposed to try to create a framework of lessening conflict, if not diminishing or getting rid of it totally. If you get rid of the Holocaust or make it so little, uh, so so unimportant that it doesn't matter anymore, you take away the validation for some of these institutions. And that's what some people are trying to accomplish. Um, So I think that element is very strong. 
that's a sort of a larger general macro picture. In the micro part of it, anti-Semitism has not only not gone away, it's increased. We know that. Um, Dara Horn is a wonderful author, did a very strong book. I forget the exact title, but the thrust of it is that people are very comfortable commemorating dead Jews. Yes. Um, it's live Jews that they have the issue with. The Holocaust is a look backward, even though there are the lessons that I mentioned need to be applied for today. But a lot of people, individuals, institutions, countries are more comfortable with commemorating the dead Jews who can't speak up and don't pose a problem today. Um, I am interested in the Holocaust as what happened in the past, but also its impact today um, and what the lessons are for protecting live Jews. In that case, I think that one of the things we have to realize is that um, we need to speak up. We need to be assertive, not assertive against others. Um, we're not asserting superiority or anything like that, but assertive in saying that, that we deserve the same rights as anybody else. We are a minority. We're a tiny minority. Um, I know our success rate has been unparalleled in the United States. I know um, our history in the United States is unparalleled as well. And I thank God that my ancestors left Europe and, and came here when they came here. Exactly. Uh, it's, 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 you know, just every day I, I do that. Um, that is my husband every day. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't mean that there's not a history of anti-Semitism in the U.S. There is. Um, and we see, you know, it coming out today in many ways as well. Um, but we're not actors in anyone else's political drama. Um, we, we are, you know, we have our own role to play in history. We define ourselves. Um, at the same time, we don't exist in a vacuum and we need allies. We need strong allies. Um, I was just in Europe and I'll, I guess we'll get to that in a little minute in a minute or so. And, and through my work in IRA, where the majority of people are not Jewish, um, I met people who are so committed to this work, who have devoted themselves professionally in places, you know, far out places, uh, you know, uh, Slovenia and, and 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 Serbia and you know places like we don't even think about generally, and yet devote themselves to keeping the memory alive and 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 making sure that the lessons are learned today, and that's really encouraging um, that we have those kind of allies, and we need to, I think, recognize their importance and 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 appreciate them as well. Uh we're getting, I'm watching the clock, so I just need you to just, only because I'm now a new member of the Association of Holocaust Organizations, that's where I met you in person in June at the conference, just could you tell us briefly how that one organization, which has global members, works to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive? AHO provides a unique and indispensable, plays a unique and indispensable role. It is the network of Holocaust organizations internationally. I can't remember how many members we have, 350, 500, something like that. Um, and it's grown immensely since it began. Um, but the role of AHO is um, to provide a place where people can, uh, in the field, can stay in touch, can learn from each other, can support each other. Um, this is not an easy uh, field to work in, in the sense of that there is controversy around, involved with it. It touches on difficult historical um, issues in many places. Um, in the United States, we have a vast network of support. In other countries and other regions and other places, we don't necessarily have that. Um, there are people who are isolated. I just talked about the people who are um, devoting themselves to this work, um, but don't have a support system, don't have the network. AHO provides that. 
It provides has a listserv for members. It shares information. It shares updates. It provides a place where people can come together physically, uh, where people can learn from each other. Um, it provides a place where institutions that are small, you know, the 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 modern version of the one room schoolroom um, of of lore can receive support from um, larger institutions like the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum or Yad Vashem or, or places like that. Um, it provides a voice for these people. Um, and I know from experience that, uh, you know, I've consulted with members of Congress um, as they produced legislation or worked on legislation. Um, AHO has had a voice in, in those conversations. Um, so it really plays an indispensable role for an organization whose, I think, importance is growing um, every year. And I'm very grateful to have played a part in it. Well, and thank you for the part that you play, Evelyn. Um, finally, Mark, let's discuss the work you do as uh, Chief Operating Officer for the World Jewish Restor uh, Restitution Organization. Could you tell us about the organization's mission? Well, the WJRO is actually a relatively new organization. It's kind of linked a little bit together with the Claims Conference. So I'll begin with the Claims Conference, which grew out of uh, late 1940s, early 1950s negotiations um, with Germany and Austria, headed by survivors such as Saul Kagan and Roman Kent and, and, and that generation of survivors. Um, but Claims, uh, which was just in the news with the recent agreement that they signed, I think uh, just a couple of days ago, with Germany, um, renewing uh, the 70-year relationship and 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 continuing it and moving it forward um claims really deals only with germany and austria uh, which is a massive job in itself because as we all know the holocaust originated with germany and 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 the austrians despite their early attempts were willing partners um in a national sense um wjro grew out of the lifting of the iron curtain in the mid-1990s where all these countries that had been inaccessible in terms of Holocaust issues. I mean, Ira, by the way, the same thing. Ira, in some ways, dealt with the educational and historical issues for some of these countries in its earliest iteration, beginning in 1998 and 2000. Um, but WJRO began in 1995 and is a consortium of 14 different Jewish organizations um, representing internationally the really the voice of survivors to deal with the um, issues of regarding restitution and Holocaust memory in the approximately 17 countries that are not Germany and Austria and were now accessible after the lifting of the Iron Curtain. So we try to get, we don't deal with individual cases. We try to create legal agreements and frameworks where restitution can take place on communal property, on uh, private property, depending on the circumstances. We deal with restoration and preservation of Jewish heritage sites, such as cemeteries that were abandoned or, or, or synagogues that were you know, abandoned and no law um, have anyone to support them. We um, work with the local Jewish communities as well. We are partners in foundations in a number of these countries that carry the work on. So there is a voice um, and participation of the local Jewish community. Um, and it's an ongoing effort to achieve justice before it's too late. Um, I was just in Europe this week. Um, coincidentally, at the same time as the claims conference meetings in Berlin were going on, I was in Strasbourg on Wednesday, where we had a uh, conference on uh, Holocaust restitution at the European Parliament. Um, and just to give you an example of the kind of people that we're talking about, that I mentioned earlier, who are allies in this force, the uh, member of the European Parliament, 
who sponsored it um, from Luxembourg, a man named Charles Gorens, uh, turned out, and I did not know this until we sat down Wednesday morning and we're just chatting, um, that he had headed the Luxembourg delegation to the Stockholm de uh, Forum in 2000, which created IRA. So he's been involved in this work, and clearly he was involved a little bit before that, uh, let's say from the mid or late 1990s, to head the delegation there. He has been involved in this work as a member, of, a, a politician from Luxembourg, for over 25 years. Um, he's not Jewish, and he's doing it because it matters and he cares. Um, and he's still doing it. So he produced and and, and tabled and other, uh, introduced a resolution in the European Parliament that we expect him to take up and vote on uh, in early October that endorses the European Union's uh, Parliament's support of the idea of restitution for all its member countries and calls on them to support. There's an international, large-scale international conference taking place in Prague on November 3rd, sponsored by the Czech government, um, which is a 10-year commemoration of an earlier conference called the Terrorism Conference and Terrorism Declaration, where 47 countries came together and signed the declaration, again, supported the idea of restitution, Holocaust education and memory and so on. So it's 10 years on, and the Czechs are revisiting it. Um, it's high level. They're, they're inviting um, the level of foreign ministers and delegations. I'll actually be one of the speakers um, at, at the conference. Um, and it's an attempt to move it forward and have each country um, express commitments, again, not necessarily legally, but morally or politically binding commitments on what they will do in the future, in the next few years on this issue to move it forward. So these are the things that WJRO is involved with that, uh, are, you know, I, I guess we could say we're a sister of the claims conference, um, but have a unique role to play this thing from the claims conference. Thank you for explaining that. We're at the end of our time, except I promised you anything really important that you want to add that we didn't give you a chance to say. Yes, and this is going to be really a thank you to you guys because I can't tell you how encouraging it is to find people like yourselves who take up an issue and are not, you know, involved on on the high professional level or high institutional level with, you know, the the, the governments or academic work on it or, um, you know, institutional organizational work, but are basically people who have had um, an interest and a commitment. And that is really, I think, what we draw support on um, from on a political level, um, on a strategic level, and, and an emotional and moral level is the fact that um, the people are, uh, people are mobilizing on a very, uh, you know, I'll say grassroots level in a way um, to express their interest and concern and, and care about it and commitment to it. And, and your podcast is a reflection of that. Um, and I think it's usually important that it sets an example and models uh, what individuals can do um, that, you know, you don't have to sit around waiting for something to come from the top down. And I think the more people listen to your podcast, the more people follow your path, your, your footsteps, um, the better off our world will be. So I thank you for your commitment and um, passion on that's this. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. Thank you for our listeners. For anyone who has not yet seen Evelyn's documentary, Never Again Is Now, I highly recommend it. And you can see it on Amazon and YouTube. There's more information about my free nonfiction Holocaust play at thinedgeofthewedge.com and as we end every podcast, we say, as long as you don't put yourself in physical harm, 
speak up whenever you can against anti-Semitism and all. <laughs>